This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash be here now. Welcome to the Rerooted Podcast with Francesca Maxime, trauma-sensitive mindfulness meditation teacher and poet. Together, we'll take a closer look at approaches to transforming trauma with insights from psychology, neuroscience, spirituality, social justice, and the creative arts. Join Francesca and her guests for an exploration of our shared connection and how we can cultivate greater compassion for ourselves and for others. If you'd like to support Francesca and the Rerooted Podcast, please visit BeHereNowNetwork.com forward slash Francesca. Hey, everybody. I'm Francesca Maxime, and welcome to this edition of the Rerooted Podcast here on Ram Dass's Be Here Now Network. Uh, really, we're just trying to get back into the root causes of things, trying to really understand what's going on underneath the surface and all the ways in which um, stuff that we can't necessarily see with the naked eye is still at play and uh, trying to dig down a little bit deeper and invite ourselves into um, getting curious about all of that and uh, what does that mean for us. Um, As you know, probably, if you've been listening for a while, I'm uh, Haitian, Dominican, Italian, and American. I am right now on Nipmuc territory in Massachusetts, although I reside on Lenape and Canarsie territory in Brooklyn, New York, and I am myself a multi-ethnic person. Um, Now I'm a psychotherapist. I've had a lot of privilege in terms of lighter white skin advantage privilege. um, And I've had a lot of uh, educational and uh, social privilege along the lines of, you know, being a native English speaker, uh, growing up Christian in this country and whatnot. And I say all these things and call attention to the social location piece because it it points to uh, the piece that we're going to be talking about today with uh, Dante King. Um, our special guest, uh, he is sort of this amazing historian, educator, um, academic that, that brings together uh, a variety of, of worlds to kind of bring home the point that there's a reason why we got here. We're in the middle of the summer of 2020, the summer of protests, uh, the culmination um, of, of centuries of uh, systems of oppression and, and, and white body supremacy. And Dante's work really tries to start to unpack what's at the root of this, as I was saying earlier. What's underneath? What are the causes? So Dante is a native of San Francisco. He is a workforce learning and organizational development professional specializing in the implementation of equity, diversity, inclusion, social justice, and implicit unconscious bias educational training with more than 15 years of experience. Throughout his career, he has gained expertise in designing, developing, and delivering a combination of retreats, classes, and seminars. The primary focus of his life has been working to promote equity, inclusion, and equality of underserved, underacknowledged, and underprivileged populations, specifically communities of color, sexual orientation, and gender minorities, and his goal is to help individuals, organizations, and institutions understand and make connections between historical and current factors and influences that perpetuate institutional, systemic, and structural oppression in mainstream society. Dante King, welcome to Rerooted. Thank you so much for joining me and uh, our listeners here today. Thank you, Francesca. Thanks for uh, having me on. I appreciate it. Um, So yeah, I'm here in the Bay Area. Um, I identify as Black, um, gay, uh, queer sometimes. Um, my, my pronouns are uh, they, them, really non, uh, but it's ranged throughout my life it's from he, him to she, her. Um, so 
I just um, flow with life, you know, and I, I believe in the embrace and affirm affirmation um, and aff uh, affirming rather of all people um, and, and really seeing into people's humanity and celebrating it um, and, and seeing beyond all of the, the structures and the ways in which we've been taught to believe and think and, and process and um, all of the tools that have been implemented within our societal infrastructure to make difference. So um, again, thank you for having me. I'm here in San Francisco, uh, in the San Francisco Bay Area um, on what was originally the land of the Ohlone people. Um, and I think it's so important to uh, recognize and, and name that um, in, in every, on every occasion. Um, so yeah, thank you for having me. Yeah, beautiful. Thank you. And, um, and yeah, like, you know, I just think it's important to just sort of acknowledge that, you know, um, there's a lot of, you know, really good victories actually lately in indigenous communities um, over the last few weeks, uh, although certainly not enough, but, you know, progress, strides. Um, and, and my pronouns, by the way, are, are she, her. But um, okay, let, you know, we met maybe a month ago. You didn't really meet me. I met you because I was watching a Ken Hardy, Dr. Kenneth Hardy's Quarantine Conversations in the Eichenberg Institute, um, day-long uh, series of talks, and you were the final one. Um, it was a really rich, rich, rich uh, day about institutional, structural, and historical ways in which uh, structural oppression has been perpetuated um, over time, how it was planned, the seeds that were planted long ago, we see, uh, God forbid I say, the fruits of today. Um, we see what what has come of that. And um, I guess what we were talking about off camera before we started was the granularity with which you pointed to the myriad of ways in which uh, colonizers and slave owners and um, all the systems uh, conspired, if you will, to kind of make sure that at every turn, you know, as I said, it was sort of like you're stuck in a labyrinth. It's like, I thought of that. I thought of that. I thought of that. I thought of that. You can't go here or do that or get liberation here or there because I thought of that too. And like, it's like being stuck in there. And so the, the interesting piece was, is that the day long was called quarantined conversations. We're in this actual quarantine. And yet at the same time, that's what I feel like was just you know, people have called it a lifetime of quarantine. Uh, uh, the black doula, Sabia Wade, just did a class that I took called the lifetime in quarantine, meaning what is it like to have no exit, you know, sort of that Camus, you know, existential piece. And so I just want to invite you to start with um, what brought you into feeling like this was the way in which I would most be able to perhaps teach folks, help folks come into realization around these systems by going through this really granular granular way of telling the history, the horrible history. Uh, well, thank you for um, laying that foundation. I think you hit on the, the very unique way in which I attempt to bring people to a point of understanding the uniqueness around anti-Blackness and anti-Black racism and how white people created um, beginning with, with really the English who began to memorialize these things and into laws, but how they legally constructed identities um, using the law as a tool to be able to do that. And they didn't necessarily arrange things in, into one law particularly, but what they did was uh, they began to define experiences um, in terms of property rights, um, ownership, who, um, ownership of land, ownership of people, um, they begin to take away rights and deconstruct um, the humanity of black and brown people, of, of black people in particular, um, in a way that was much different. And it happened for, um, you know, certain native tribes as well, who either um, disagreed and or quote unquote rebelled against um, the systems of oppression which were being instituted. Uh, but for those who were in amity uh, with the government, as they would name pretty consistently, um, they would be protected, if you will, or, or given those certain rights as well. 
Um, and then there's a point where um, it's actually named and prescribed in the law that color is prima facie evidence. Those are, those are the specific words that are used. So it's pointing to something very specific that color defines um, one's conditions. Um, and there are semblances of that early on. So um, I, I think the one ultimate reason that led me to um, design the work that I do in, in the particular way that I do it was um, as I attempted to teach about structural racism and institutional racism and cultural racism and how that impacts interpersonal personal racism, um, it was hard for people to make connections. And I would get pushback um, many a time for people who would say, well, yeah, some bad things happened. Um, and yeah, Black people were oppressed and we did these things, but we also did these things to, um, you know, we also did some bad things to the Chinese community. We did some horrible things to Japanese people. Um, you see, we, we had the Jewish um, Holocaust um, and those are such valid, viable points, right? Um, and they, they have tremendous meaning. And um, what I begin to learn, um, which begin to fuel my work and how I do it, was that um, during early colonialism, what, what we literally have um, in starting in the early 17th century, leading into the end of the 18th century, when we go to war and declare independence, what you literally have is the shaping and the creating of white identity and black identity which would forever, um, which, for, which basically memorialized how these two identities would sit in position to each other, but also in relationship to every such other group that white people would then um, socially prioritize in between those groups. And it helped me to understand why all, you know, how everything from capitalism um, is a tool of racism, um, how the ability to erect, create, erect, um, shape, reinforce, uh, enforce, reinforce laws or revoke them. The power to do that um, is a power of oppression, uh, particularly used to devise racism and sexism um, in very explicit ways. Uh, but how, all, how both of those variables impact um, every such other institution. So right. lawmaking, capitalism, um, it impacts everything and how even things that we don't look at as biased, but these are just kind of standard cultural um, institutions such as education or employment, um, how those are tools of, of racism and, and other types of oppression or have been leveraged in that manner. Mm -hmm. In terms of exclusion, inclusion. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Right, right, right. Yeah, you can't just say, well, if you work hard, you'll get ahead when... <laughs> There are all these systems that keep out certain folks from even being, you know, in the applicant pool. Right. right. Yeah. Um, okay. So, you know, we were talking about my mom a little bit off 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 camera before because um, she also watched your presentation and she was really struck by it. And uh, and I'm 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 starting with. Uh, her main critique, which is that I don't ask people for enough of examples. So uh, for 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 my mother, <laughs> I'm going to ask you for some examples that you provided in the in the um, in the presentation, or you know, just ones that you know of in general. That are these granular pieces that I learned. You know, for example, of the way in which the children of people who were enslaved did not become. <laughs> they weren't ever allowed to be the children of the mothers that were birthing them. And um, the way in which that systematized every place along the way, um, legally and, and, you know, the whole thing, like you just said about humans as property, and then the ways in which that that was enforced when it comes to certain, you know, slave patrols and night patrols and who got those jobs and why and how and all these ridiculous things that... Um, are very real and very deadly. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, so, you know, well, what I'll do then is I will go back. Just uh, bear with me. 
Because I think this is important while you're looking. I'm just going to say this. I think this is really important because what I understood from your presentation was the depth and the level to which there was absolutely no way of turning away from the ways in which this system of um, property, of ownership, of dehumanization, of categorization around skin color, the pyramid in terms of the color hierarchy, um, the way in which, um, yes, uh, you know, indigenous genocide, yes, um, you know, uh, like you were saying earlier, these other uh, communities also being treated horrendously, but that there's a very specific way that anti-Black racism shows up. And that's what we're talking about this summer, uh, finally, um, but very specifically. And and that this is the evidence. You have the receipts on this, you know, about what is here. I know. I try to be a millennial sometimes. <laughs> it's all good. Um, so I'll, I'll go back to these slides and I'll, I'll share um, a cadre of examples. Um, so what, what you see, and I think what Francesca is speaking to, um, and I'll try to run through these because I can be very verbose, um, but for example, an act in 1660 that established that if English servants specifically, and I have that bolded and highlighted um, because it speaks to these very um, specific groups. It's, it's speaking to uh, particular groups of people. Um, so if any English servant should run away in company with any Negroes who are uh, incapable of making satisfaction by an addition of time. So meaning if they run away together, the English and if the black person. If a white servant, person and a black person. Yeah, a white person and a black person run away together. Um, and they are caught and let's say something happens to the Negro, the black person. Uh, they get um, a limb dismembered or, you know, they're they're hurt and they're unable to continue with fulfilling their term of indenture, uh, be it enacted that the English servant um, shall serve the time of the Black person uh, for their absence. So they're going to make up that time that they were gone. Um, you see this again in a law in 1662 that establishes that not only English, but Christian. And the term white hasn't yet come into play. Um, so they're des describing different European groups by other um, ethnic and ethno-religious. So Christian carried an ethno-religious connotation. So this law goes further to say that um, if any white people should run away in company with any black people who are incapable of satisfying their time, that the uh, white person in company with the black person at the time that their term of, of indenture is expired to their master, the white person should serve the master of the black person um, for their absence um, in, in, in perpetuity, if, if that was the term um, of, 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 or a length of time on that indenture, if, that has, if that's what had been established. So, and then also- So if I'm a white person, I'm just clarifying. So if I'm a white person, I'm consorting with a black person and the black person gets injured and they're not able to fulfill their duties as an indentured servant, as an enslaved person, or to fulfill whatever the duties are, quote unquote, the duties, that um, as a white person, I need to do it instead. Uh -huh. yes. Which would, I'm just drawing this out. I think the point here is, and you can talk more about it, is that- then what white person is going to want to hang out with black people? You got it. Yeah, that's a, that's a great way to simplify it. So there's a loss of white privilege um, if you do these things. And they saw this happening uh, earlier on. Right around this time, uh, there is a, a slave revolt, a revolt, rebellion in uh, I think it's Gloucester County, Virginia, uh, in, in or around 1663, where you have. Um, people, black people who are enslaved and white indentured servants coming together um, to fight um, against the, the, the masters um, in that county um, at that particular time. And so they begin to see early on, earlier on um, these people being in relationship with each other, be it friendships, be it um, you know, spousal types of situations uh, that was very present. And there's a lot that speaks to it. Um, in terms of the registry of like who was actually married um, in, in the county, in this colony at the time. Um, one other example that I go to is Elizabeth Key Grinstead, 
who was the daughter of one of the members of the House of Burgesses, Thomas Key. Um, that's the first governing body, self-appointed, um, not self-appointed, but under the, the royal charter, um, governing body in the colony of Virginia at the time. 1655. And, yeah. Um, and so they were established in roughly around 1619. But uh, this case where Elizabeth Key was, she was the daughter of an African woman and uh, her father was Thomas Key. He owned her mother. He indentured her until she was age 15. And at age, at age 15, she was supposed to go free. Uh, but he indentured her to uh, Humphrey Higginson. And then Humphrey Higginson returned to England and he sold her indentures, uh, indentureship to the Matron Plantation. Um, and she ended up having to sue the, the Matron estate um, for her freedom. And they went back and forth a few times. The lower court agreed with her that under English common principle, um, which said that the condition of the child follows the condition of the mother, that she was free because the, the two um, the, the, the two things that, she, uh, um, sorry, the two items of proof, if you will, that she sued upon or claims was that her, her father was English um, and it was against the law for English people to be enslaved. Right. Um, so she sued that he was English and that he was also baptized Christian. Right, she had the receipt. Um, and if one was, yeah, she did. So if one was baptized Christian, they also couldn't be enslaved. So the courts agreed with her. Um, and here's the that piece that I was speaking to about being white and, and being able to create laws or, or um, adjust laws, if you will, alter them. Um, for your own self-interest and for whatever agenda that you want to, that one wants to advance. Um, and so they, there was some grappling and the higher court said, well, we disagree with that. She's, she's black, she should be enslaved. So they go back and forth and finally her case was dropped. But in 1662, and this is really, um, every time I see this, it grips me, um, but they, wrote in this law, whereas some doubts have arisen whether children got by any Englishman upon a Negro woman, and it's very specific, um, should be slave or free, be it therefore enacted and declared by this present grand assembly that all children born in this country shall be held bond or free only according to the condition of the mother, and that if any Christian, any non-English, but also European person shall commit fornication with a Negro man or woman, he or she so offending shall pay double the fines imposed by the former act. Mm -hmm. So this is really um, burdensome from the standpoint of racial slavery and what it means to be Black and female and what it means to be female and Black during this time. Um, and so some of the questions that I ask and you um, these are maybe even more because um, I continue to add to this, but I say, you know, we're taught to dismiss this history as though these were the norms of the time that white people did not recognize the humanity of black people mm -hmm. and to be casually dismissive and passive about it. Right. Um, and I, I argue in my work that white people very much recognize the humanity of black women and black men. Um, these people that they deem per pernicious and or spurious at certain times. Um, but they also saw the need to deconstruct the, their humanity. Mm -hmm. And so they used the law as a tool to be able to do that. Um, so I, I invite people to think about, you know, what's developing in regards um, from this one particular law uh, in the regard uh, of, of white men's regard for Black uh, and, and Indigenous women. Because as we know, there were some indigenous women who were enslaved also. Mm -hmm. um, what does this set up for them? How does the inability to consider their pain, the harm that they're doing, and their residual effects, their unwell being during this time, how does that become a cultural fixture amongst white men and white women um, during this period? What becomes normal for white males and, and white male children um, and then what dynamics evolve between white women and girls and black and native women and girls? 
um, as a result of this. Yeah. Let me just pause there for a moment, Dante, because I really want to underscore what you just were saying, just like right even before, right? Which is, I think the first point you made, which I already said, is that if a white person hangs out with a black person and they're both trying to collude over being um, economically oppressed and exploited, that they are going to um, be punished if they're white further than what they already have just for trying to um, come together around this economic oppression and sort of fight back, right? That's point one. Mm -hmm. Point two is that in the case of um, what they've sort of constructed as, uh, you know, they weren't yet so, so, so savvy. They were using words like Christian and European and things like that, but it really is code for white, Right. And so until that time, they had this case where um, because this woman who was, uh, you know, indentured, but then freed and all of that, they were trying to basically keep her enslaved. Right. And and that and that she was arguing, well, your law says that because I'm, you know, I have this uh, English dad and I'm Christian, I've been baptized and all these things, then, you know, I'm good. I'm good to go. Right. And and they're just like, well, you know not so much because we're going to come back at you with a better, bigger, stronger law that makes it super clear that um, basically Negro women are the lineage uh, through which your uh, ability to be free or not is determined. Is that right? Absolutely. And that consequently, the present day, you know, sort of um, consequences of that uh, have a whole host of things that that have come up around, you know, black motherhood, children, you know, the way black women are seen, um, you know, we're, the, you know, the whole the whole kit and caboodle of it. And 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 that what you're saying, too, is that um, they were very conscious, the people who are creating these laws of black humanity, of humanity, of indigenous humanity, and were so clear about the fact that um, blacks and whites did love each other. I mean, there was a lot of rape, obviously, also, but that's not what I'm talking about. Right. I'm talking about the part of people who were coming together in love or in friendship, right? And, uh -huh. um, and that that was dismantled through the color line and that that was made explicitly clear through all of these systematized laws time and time again. So when the natural inclination for connection might arise, which if we say, you know, our loving basic goodness nature is connection or compassion or something like that, they put the kibosh on that because they made it really rough for you if you even tried to reach out and extend a hand. And in your own Absolutely. interest of self-preservation, you may not want to do that. If you mm -hmm. had privilege, if you had racial privilege, even if you were mm -hmm. indentured or even if you were, you know. Yeah. Okay. That, that's, it, that's exactly what it was. Um, I mean, that's, that's a great uh, framing of it um, and to modernize it and to simplify it in, in today's terms. Um, and that there's a, a sever, a severing of solidarity that takes place, mm -hmm. even for people who may have the desire to want to dismantle systems and practices of oppression. Um, it's like, there's gonna, it's gonna come at a loss. Right. Right. Um, yeah. So keep going. I just want to uh, like kind of tie it and bring, bring it, you know, bring it a little home a little bit. Yeah. Um, another example looking at, and that was Virginia. This one is in Maryland um, where this one says, be it enacted by the right honorable, and this, this is 1664, an act concerning Negroes and other slaves. And I wanna point that out because I'm gonna drill a point home um, just in this first uh, component of it. It says, be it enacted by the right honorable and local proprietary by the advice and consent of the upper and lower house of this present general assembly that all Negroes or other slaves already within the province and all Negroes and other slaves to be hereafter imported into the province shall serve Durante Vita, hard labor for life. I think what's very significant about this, well, you can, you can tell me, is there any piece of that, that that stands out to you in terms of the, the emphasis on Black or Blackness? Well, an act concerning Negroes and, and, and other slaves, hard labor for life, just anybody who comes in is a slave. Yes, yes. Um, to a, to a degree, and I want to clarify this. So I, I've given a few examples. 
if you are, let's say, of uh, Austrian descent and you are enslaved in some, some other place uh, and you come here, you're, you're to be enslaved for life. That's what this is saying. Um, if you are already here and let's say you are of Austrian descent um, and you are enslaved, you're going to be a slave for life. Um, however, if you are of Austrian descent and you come from somewhere else and you're free, then you, you come uh, to Maryland during this time, you're going to remain free. Mm. But if you are Negro and you're free and you come from somewhere else, be it the continent of Africa or Haiti or Jamaica, uh, and you come here during this time, you are going to be enslaved for life. Right. Um, and that's the distinction. Um, White coming in, in free, you stay free. Black coming in free, you're enslaved. You got it. Um, and so this is Virginia. And uh, so then you go to the impact um, on white women. And I think there are different motivations for this. Um, part of it being that the ratio of white women to white men was very um, low. Um, eight, sometimes eight to one, sometimes um, nine to one, but it was always very vast. So you mean there was a disparity? Was, like the, for the colonizers, the colonists, there was mostly white men, not so many white women. Yes, yes. So it there, it was vastly disparate. So yeah, thank you. Um, and so you you have this the the second part of this law, an additional component of this law that says. And all children born of any Negro, uh, male, uh, or other slave shall be slaves as their fathers were for the term of their lives. So there was a law that dealt with, you know, heritage or, or lineage through um, the female body. Now they're dealing with the male body in this particular one. Um, and for as much as diverse freeborn English women, forgetful of their free condition, and to the disgrace of our nation, marry Negro slaves by which also diverse suits may arise, touching the issue of such women, and a great damage befalls the, the Black person's uh, uh, master for prevention whereof, for deterring such freeborn women of such shameful matches, be it further enacted by the authority, advice, and consent. Um, that whatsoever freeborn woman shall marry any slave from and after the last day of this present assembly shall serve the master of such slave during the life of her husband. Right. Um, so there. Oh, well, sorry, I'm just again just like pausing, right? Because like just taking this in, I'm a white woman who is, you know, somehow like came over as a, you know, colonist, and I want to marry a black enslaved man, fall in love. Uh, what this says is, is that I am going to be, um, I, you just popped the slide out, but what I, what I'm understanding is, is that, that I end up having to serve the master of the, the person I married. So I become enslaved. So again, I become in service to the master, meaning that why would I want to give up my freedom and my white privilege Mm -hmm. just for love and to marry a black man. You got it. Why would I want to give and, up my white privilege to marry some person I love? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And this is more than, and I want to, I really <laughs> just want to emphasize, this is more than just disownership or discouragement. This is the law. And so there's consequence. So you literally become a, a prisoner because all slavery is, is an institution of imprisonment and in, 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 in um, confinement, uh, free labor for, for life. So you literally commit yourself to being imprisoned with your mate. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, and if that's... No, no, go ahead. I was just going to say, and if that's not enough, right, to add to it, um, it's like, and that all the children of such freeborn women, so married, shall be slaves as their fathers were, and be it further enacted that all the children of English or other freeborn women, other European women that have already married Negroes shall serve the masters of their parents till they be 
uh, 30 years of age uh, and no longer. So now it's not only that you're at risk, um, what do you want for your children? Right. Because they're going to be in servitude. Um, it says 30 years of age, but I don't, I, I, I doubt there was any cutoff there. And what we know also from, from records is like, you know, the average lifespan may have been 40, 45. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, I guess, you know, again, just trying to update, like, what does this mean? Like, what, what about what you're saying is relevant to today? Right. And like, yeah. that's what I'm, that's the connection I'm here to try to help make because you did all the yeah. research and I'm trying to say, like, so what does this mean to us now? I look at interracial marriages, I look at interracial relationships, I look at, you know, the ways in which, you know, like I was saying earlier, black women's bodies and black men's bodies have been um, objectified and exploited in a variety of other ways. This idea of ownership, right? And this idea of, as you say, incarceration, like imprisonment, like not having agency, and all the ways in which these are all systematized and legalized in the system going back 500 years. Mm -hmm. I think one of the things that's hard for many white people to get, if they spend two to three days with me, uh, they, they, they walk away changed people. Um, but, but earlier on, you know, as we were going through the, the workshop that I do, um, people are grappling and they're like, well, what does this mean? And I think, and I'm going to just lay it out very clear, have it in a slide here. Mm. I think one of the things that's really hard for white people to get is that they are responsible for, for every such outcome in our society today that they see, uh, that, that where Black people are concerned, uh, that the law and the legal system in, in our cultural context, in the U.S. cultural context, um, is a tool, has been a tool for white men to create and shape culture according to their collective racial and gender self-interest. Um, that, that's controlling what white women do as well and how they are used in all right. of this. Um, advance any and all agendas that protect their self-interest, which includes establishing a buffer and coalition of labor and class white men as gatekeepers um, and other gatekeepers, which include, as I mentioned, white women, uh, people minoritized as Black, Indigenous, people of color, uh, to protect um, the cultural, institutional outcomes um, and their their own self-interest. Um, they've also used the this process to establish and define rights and privileges for themselves, um, how they would participate, as well as defining others out, uh, while consistently um, deconstructing the humanity of African people and African-Americans and reinforcing that deconstruction through perpetual, through, through adding uh, and perpetuating additional laws and policies that further reinforce the oppression. Right. Um, through, through economic, educational, employment policy um, and, and all other rights and privileges and, and disprivileges. Right. And I think that that's why when people talk about the cis heteropatriarchy, they're talking about this imperialist culture of what are all the ways in which essentially white men have crafted a system that benefits them. And in that system, it's a lot about um, money and, um, you know, uh, and, and, and money as the currency of, of a social capital, you know, money is the currency and then having the whiteness be the social capital. Um, Absolutely. and that it's necessarily, uh, an exclusive club, um, but that there's systems in place to keep it going in this particular way. Um, do you have more slides? It is. Sorry. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, no, it's okay. I was just gonna, um, share, um, how I think one of the things that is, um, very disturbing to me, um, is that. In, in all of this, and, and one of the things that I explore is the dynamic of, as all of these things are going on, it also reinforces a disconnection from Black people's humanity um, and the continuous justification uh, that, that is um, asserted or put forth to rationalize the mistreatment. And it's done using science, it's done using religion, um, and it's done using just this kind of very casual and or apathetic and sometimes like very harsh 
opinion and in, in, uh, conception of who black people are. Um, and so you have this law and Dr. Joy DeGree, she talks about this in her book mm-hmm. as well, but the Casual Killing Act um, of 1669, where it says, uh, whereas the only law in force for the punishment of refractory servants resisting their master, mistress, or overseer cannot be inflicted upon Negroes. Uh, so that law is specific to European people. It cannot be inflicted upon Black people, nor the stubbornness of many of them be suppressed by other than violent means. Um, be it enacted and declared by the Grand Assembly, uh, if any slave resists his master or other by his master's order correcting him, and by the extremity of the correction should happen to die, that his death should not be accounted felony, but the master or that other person appointed by the master to punish him be acquitted from any accountability, um, since it cannot be presumed that premeditated malice, which alone makes murder a felony, should induce any man to destroy his own estate. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I say here is that you you put in, you memorialize uh, this practice in culture where it makes killing black bodies legal, normal, cultural, and moral in white culture and in the white mind. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a normal happening. So it's not just a cognitive dissonance, but it is... Um, psychopathic right made killing blacks legal normal cultural Mm. and moral in the white mind meaning that and it's called the casual killing act meaning if i happen to kill you while i'm trying to punish you i can't be held accountable because um i wouldn't have wanted to kill you because i was really only trying to punish you and trying to get you to do what i want you to do which in my mind you weren't doing well enough which is why i'm you know, punishing you now and whoops, I killed you. And, um, yeah, since you're really not a person, uh, and you're just my property, then, uh, it's, uh, stupid of me to have pushed it that far because I just killed off my own property, but I'm not morally or legally accountable. And it's just too bad on me because I lost some of my own property and it's not even like a human life. It's not even like a person. Right. Right. Um, and so how is that functioning? How has that functioned? Um, and I go through another, you know, a series of laws that actually reinforce this because it's over and over again. And there are ones where, um, and then maybe I'll show it if I have time, but where it speaks to, because uh, some, sometimes what the question that'll come up is, how were they able to, how were they able to implement these? You know, they, we didn't have the type of social media that we have today. Um, And so like embedded in one of the laws that I share in in, in the example is that it says this law should be uh, published every six months at the county uh, courts and at the parish churches. So when you went to church or when you went shopping or or when you went out in community, this is what you saw. Right. And this is what was being distributed. Right. There are posters out there everywhere every six months to remind people, hey, you know what? You have this leeway. Hey, you know what? You have this right. Hey, you know, um, you're not going to be held accountable. Do what you got to do. We're not going to come looking for you. As a matter of fact, we want to remind you that this is how it is. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. And I invite people, you know, who are black, who are white, um, who are not black, you know, minoritized people. Um, to consider if this was your circumstance, if these things were happening to you, what, how would you react? What, what would it cause for you mentally, emotionally, but also physically? If you know that your mother, sister, daughter can be raped at any given time, there's no accountability. You've seen your brother, uncle killed, your father castrated, and this is beginning to happen all around you. Um, and I, I try to get people to understand the, the aggression and the intensity around what it became to me in order to be Black, because you realize pretty quickly, I would suspect, um, that there's nothing to lose. So you have a rebellious spirit and in a, a rebellious way that you develop as a result of the context that you're in. Everything around you has turned on its head, it's unsafe. There's there's no safety in it. And this is specifically happening 
in the dynamic of white people are getting away with right. it. So then who, who from that white world would you trust? Yeah, nobody, because legally there's no reason to. I mean, there's there's no reason to. And and it reminds me as we're talking, you know, sort of that image of uh, Derek Chauvin with the, um, you know, George Floyd's murder. I mean, this is the modern day um, uh, representation yeah. of what you're talking about. You know, um, no accountability, um, feeling entitled to this. This is my entitlement. Feel- yes. It's a rite of passage, the the rite of passage to inflict pain and violence and murder onto Black bodies and not uh, feel anything, you know, and it's it's for sport, if you will. Um, And we can go down the list, right, Tamir Rice or um, Walter Scott, Laquan McDonald, Sandra Bland, Charlena Lyles, Philando Castile, Oscar Grant, Trayvon Martin, uh, because it's not only that white people and or people in blue law enforcement feels that they have this right or that they're trying to, quote unquote, enforce the law or, or, or control this group. But every such other group and every such other person in society that is a participant in U.S. culture gains uh, a, a familiarity and or establishes a relationship. To, way, to the ways in which this culture is arranged and the social, um, not only norms, but permissions in, in, uh, and or lack thereof that accompanies what it means to be either a U.S. citizen or a or participant in, in U.S. culture. Right. That um, it reminds me of a... a wasn't a podcast, but it was a, a web TV show that I do. The, the conversation I was having with a Korean American uh, therapist, and she was um, sort of coming to the realization like, gee, I, and I think a lot of other Asian Americans adopted as the go-to first strategy, white culture, which included, you know, um, what you're talking about, the, 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 the sort of, you know, white, she called it the white perspective, you know, and right, right. But that coming into the awareness of that, then you can begin to change. To a degree, right? But the the culture that we are immersed in um, is white culture. This is not the indigenous culture of various Native American tribes that once existed. That's not the, those aren't the norms. Those aren't the um, cultural traditions or ideologies that we um um, have adopted and perpetuate. Uh, it is entirely a white culture. And if we look at, because I go through um, hundreds of examples in my work, uh, but particularly in the Constitution, yeah. um, one of the first laws that they drafted spoke to um, you could only become a U.S. citizen uh, if you were white and you had to be here for two years. Um, but that you could only naturalize. And that law remained in effect from 1790 into the mid 20th century, into the 1950s, okay? Um, and every such other, so if, if society forces you to adopt white principles, white ideals, white ways of thinking, white ways of being, um, in academia, employment, and every such other realm, that is what you have to ascribe to or become or figure into. And there's a cost if you don't, because you can't come here as an immigrant from China and think that you're going to keep your cultural traditions and the way that you speak your language and fit into the society here. You can do that, but you won't be able to advance Mm -hmm. as someone who is assimilated fully. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Assimilation is the price that one has to pay. giving up one's culture, you know, in order to assimilate and, and to survive here. Um, it's a tool of racism. It's a tool of racism, right, and oppression. Um, so I guess, you know, we have about 15 minutes left, and I, I, I want to see, uh, is, there, is there more slides, or is it, is it maybe time to pivot the conversation a little bit to this idea of, I mean, you have so many examples. Maybe I'll ask you this. When you're doing your workshops, you're doing them with whom, for whom, and for how long? What goes on there? You say they're multi-day workshops and um, that people are transformed. And I believe it. 
Um, so tell me a little bit about those because people may want to hire you for their organizations. Mm, thank you for that um, and for opening up the space to talk about it. So there's a lot that happens uh, and we build pretty um, slowly in the beginning to get people to explore what they've learned, what, what has they learned in terms of re, uh, racism and how it works and, and how they define it and how it functions. Um, I, I try to create a space where people, there's a lot of interaction. There's, you know, one-on-one -on -one interaction where people are talking to each other. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of groups set up. Um, and, you know, as we're exploring the information, um, one of the strategies that I use is assigning different groups, uh, different identities. So they are to embody the experiences of the groups that they're assigned. Uh, and as we go through certain um, periods of time using this, this type of legal setup, um, they're reacting to um, how they would be impacted. And so they're all then invited to come back together and talk about what they spoke about, what they um, uh, started to scribe or jot down in amongst their respective groups and evaluate uh, how different the experiences are um, within the same cultural context. Uh, but, but to understand that different people are having different experiences. And then not only that, um, they, they circulate, I'm, I'm sorry, they, they actually um, trade off or have an opportunity over the period that we're together to experience being a part of each uh, group. Um, and so the group is, the, the experience caters to any and everyone who wants to go deeper in their consciousness and understanding privilege and power, as well as oppression and powerlessness in the ways in which um, particularly black, I, I focus a lot on anti-blackness and what the, how that has been built into our culture, mm -hmm. as well as white supremacy um, and the experiences of indigenous people and what they were um, experiencing um, during certain periods as well, because it's a very distinct experience. Uh, and it's done over the course of um, days. So some organizations allow me to come in and have four or five days. Others say, you know, can we do something on, on more of a two-day scale? Um, I, I, I'm hired to do, um, as you know, just kind of out maybe some uh, very truncated uh, um, webinars, which I've done to introduce uh, sort of what I'm talking about and kind of the, the scope and body of it all. Um, but yeah, it's very experiential I, 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 what you what you offer yeah. over the period of time. And from a mindfulness yeah. perspective and from a somatic experiencing and a nervous system regulation and a trauma and a felt sense perspective, all these modalities that I'm trained in and that I've experienced and I found to be particularly powerful. And I think for a lot of the listeners and viewers are familiar with these kinds of modalities. It is that experiential piece that you cannot unsee because you didn't see it. You felt it. Yes. You embodied it. Yes. And once you have yes. that knowing, which is in mindfulness language, really sort of, you know, the Dharma, that is sort of the way, that is sort of the realization, the clicking in of, oh, so it's like this. Things drop mm -hmm. down at a different level. And I think all of this frenzy of left brain logical, here's the facts, here's the dates, here's the thing, here's the this, this happened then, it's not happening now, the laws are different, yada, yada, yada. That chatter kind of goes away. Because you are experiencing oppression in your workshop. Yes. You are aware of your experience of oppression. You are aware in your workshop of your experience of privilege and how that changes as you change the roles and you give people these different identities and you have them interact differently. That relationship 
of awareness to the experience, I think changes how people are able to then show up going forward. Yes, absolutely. And I think that's why what you offer is very different. I appreciate you for using that, the language that you use. Uh, I, I wish I could capture that. Maybe I, need, I could have you write that up for me because that's exactly, that, that's exactly what it is. And I'm, I'm going through one right now where people are saying, I feel so depressed and I feel so heavy. My heart is heavy. My mind is heavy. I feel like I've been molested. Um, yeah. And I've, I've been inviting people to sit with those feelings to sit with those feelings and it's, it's, it's coming from white people um, and not to try and go to what is it that we can do? Because the reality is is that we've not been able to do much of anything right? and there's nothing you can do when you are oppressed. Because your agency is taken away because you're, because you're, because the external barriers are there. Right. And I mean, you, you cannot, like I said in the very beginning, no exit. You know what I mean? Based on what you do with this work, you're showing these are all the ways, all the granular ways where I am locked in. I am in quarantine, literally. Right. Now, the mindfulness piece, mm-hmm. the Buddhist piece talks a lot about how we're in prisons of our mind all the time anyway, as white people, you know, this sort of uh, gaslighting, if you will, of white body supremacy or of imperialism or whatever you want to call it or patriarchy. You know, we walk around like we think we know what's going on. And, you know, we didn't realize we drank the Kool-Aid and whoops, here we are. And well, I'm enjoying privilege. So why would I even want to question it? OK. But the whole mindfulness piece is even if it is a system of oppression that you're in, look at it, see it clearly, know what it is is and know what your relationship is to it and in it, which is why I start with the social location piece, which is where am I in this? You mm-hmm. know, given that this is the system that we're in right now, where am I in this? And then what am I going to choose to do? Am I going to choose to Absolutely. just, you know, be blind and ignorant with my privilege or am I going to choose to do something else? But going through that process of what you've talked about, which is that grief, that remorse, that feeling of molestation and discombobulation that's healthy Mm. and necessary Mm -hmm. for people Mm -hmm. I think to have long-term transformation realization I I would so agree with you I I absolutely do because I've I've been witness to you know, some people within organizations who have power and influence who grapple with this and then they say, oh my God, this has just been awful and I need to use my power. I now need to use my influence. And they've been very direct about that and committed. And I've, I've seen in one case where this white guy, he told me, he's a, a medical doctor, um, Hope he doesn't mind me sharing this. His name is Dr. Larry Rand. Um, he is, works um, for UCSF at the Preterm Birth Initiative. And he started grappling. He's like, you helped me to understand how racism and anti-Blackness is rooted in white identity, even though I didn't ask for it. Mm. No one asked for this, but it's there. And I need to now use some of my, not only social privilege, but economic privilege. I need to use some of my positional privilege to do something for Black people. Like it is a responsibility because whether or not I had to do anything or I did anything or my parents did or I can say all of that, um, I still benefit from white privilege. And if I if I now know this, to the point that you made, Francesca, I can't unknow it or unsee it. And if I don't do anything, that means I'm comfortable with everything that it's taken to build up white privilege and white identity. Um, he says, and I can't live with that. So mm. I, I think it's absolutely necessary. I love that piece of I can't live with that because it's what Dr. Janet Helms, um, someone I interviewed uh, recently for the um, podcast also, you know, the stages of racial identity development, um, clinical psychologist. Anyway, we was talking about um, find it, refinding the moral center, you know, sort of being spiritually bereft, you know, 
and reclaiming and refinding the moral center that whiteness is a as a as a construct as is um a stealing of the soul mm-hmm. kind of a faustian mm-hmm. deal yeah i'm familiar with janet Hill. okay that's great yeah so five minutes left what would you paint a picture for if somebody, you know, said, you know, your your unicorn, your pony for Christmas, your your gift? Like, what would be the wish? What would is it a, a multiracial society? Is it you know reparations? Is it? Sorry, go ahead. You tell me. It's so it's not a multiracial society without there being some very distinct things that change. And I think the mindsets of white people need to change in terms of how they see themselves uh, in relationship to others. Um, There needs to be some deep exploration about, you know, what's set up white privilege and or anti-blackness. And there there needs to be implementation of tangible changes. Like we've seen movements over the last 70 to 80, 90, 100 years of people attempting to rally for equality. And that doesn't work because if people don't see you as equal to them in a system of self-interest, that can never be achieved. So the systems have to be dismantled and rearranged in order to provide people with the opportunity to see each other and recognize each other's humanity. But as long as there's something to lose, and I mean, there's something tangible to lose, in terms of self-identity and also rights to um, property, rights to these institutions and and everything that, um, all the benefits that they produce, um, people will never be able to to relate to each other's humanity. So either that, that happens or Black people need to be separated into our own societies where we can thrive, be given the same types of arrangements that white people have been given. And I'll quote from Dr. Martin Luther King, who, um, when integration was happening, he says, I'm for integration in public spaces. Absolutely. But when, as it pertains to education, absolutely not. He says, white people have a very low opinion of Black people. So why would we put them uh, in classrooms to be in charge of teaching our children? It's absurd. So um, there's a way in which we either need to learn to function together or that we be separate and apart and Black, the, the, the humanity of Black people in dignity be restored in a way that it's never been. Mm. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, beautiful. And I, I love that um, just to sort of maybe close on that, because I think a lot of folks who are in these mindfulness spaces, you know, when we're not in a pandemic and we're going to retreat centers and there's a BIPOC, um, you know, mindfulness meditation group or there's a separate, you know, uh, Black writers retreat or there's a separate, you know, people are like, why does that have to be a separate group? Why can't you just sit with us? And, you know, what you're saying is because when you don't see us, we can't be here and be our authentic full self in the way that you can just, you know, automatically feel okay with taking up that space. That doesn't, it doesn't, it's not that way for us when we're with you. And the other side to that is even in that example, you all can go off and decide you want to be alone and no one's going to bother you Mm. because there's not that same sense of um, entitlement or wanting to bombard your space. Um, and you can do that to others without any examination or thought about it, any second thought. Right, right, right. Another example of privilege. Um, we're going to have to close it here. I could talk to you forever and um, maybe will do another one, but I want everyone to just know about Dante King, D-A-N-T-E-K-I-N-G.com. Dante King, leader, speaker, innovator, um, doing the work. And uh, with all the with all the evidence, um, sad, horrendous evidence, but also all the embodied transformational experiences, which are so healing. And um, I appreciate you coming on here and, and and sharing everything you did. Is there anything else you'd like to share with our listeners before we close out? Uh, no, I, I just, I mean, I appreciate you for doing the work that you do um, in the realm that you do it. Um, 
Yeah, and I can be reached if anyone wants to reach out at Dante at DanteKing.com. Uh, you can go to my website at www.DanteKing.com. Um, but yeah, I am open to trying to make as much change as possible. So thank you. Thank you. All right, everybody. Thanks for watching Rebooted, listening to Rebooted. And you can also find a lot of anti-racism uh, resources on my website, maximeclarity.com slash resources. That's M-A-X-I-M-E clarity, C-L-A-R-I-T-Y.com slash resources. Take good care and we will see you soon. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Be Here Now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Be Here Now.